0: Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. Solidarity against the odds is precisely what workers managed to achieve at the JFK 8 Amazon Fulfillment Center on Staten Island and at the Elmwood Avenue Starbucks in Buffalo, New York. Chris Smalls and Michelle Eisen played a lead role in the nation's first ever unionization at those behemoths. And in this episode, School of Labor and Urban Studies Distinguished Lecturer, Heather McGee gets them to recount their riveting stories in captivating detail, they tell a 21st century tale of corporate union resistance, as well as a chronicle of worker determination and ingenuity that found a way to overcome those obstacles. Heather McGee gets us started.
1: I wrote a book that really came out of my time in working to try to win more nice things for more people, right? Paid family leave, universal childcare, healthcare, collective bargaining rights, clean air and water, and a living wage. And I spent nearly 20 years doing that. And in 2017 decided that there was something holding us back. And it didn't make any sense how this country that invented the American dream was falling so short of it for so many of its people. And so I hit the road and I ended up talking to hundreds of people that formed the basis for the book, The Sum of Us. And then I've just spent the last six months back out on the road again, talking to more people exclusively about their victories. And exclusively about victories that brought people together across lines of race and politics and won nice things for more people. And that is a podcast that's out right now, also called The Sum of Us. But something I learned in all of those conversations, probably a thousand conversations with people all across the country, is that it is stories it is stories that helps people see themselves in a new way that helps people see themselves and blame others for the conditions of their lives and put the blame where it belongs and it's stories that help us see the potential of organizing and the potential of power building and so instead of like you know going straight into an academic conversation here on this campus i actually want to spend a good chunk of time just hearing your stories and the stories of these incredible campaigns that rocked the world and so i want to start with you michelle can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up and how you ended up working at starbucks
2: sure So I grew up in Buffalo, New York. As far as union background, both my father and my maternal grandfather belonged to the same union growing up, which is CSEA, civil service. And they both worked for SUNY at Buffalo. And so I didn't know a lot about the union. I knew that we had really great health benefits because of the union. I remembered going to the union picnics as kids. They were always at an amusement park, which was really fun. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, I didn't have a lot of labor background. We didn't grow up with a lot of money And in spite of that, I chose to go into a career in the arts to just ensure that I also didn't have a lot of money, but I I loved it. And it was, it was my choice, but I did find myself in my, my mid twenties needing to find a, a flexible job that could supplement my income and provide me with health benefits. And that is what brought me to Starbucks. I'd been a customer for a long time and I knew how I was treated as a customer, which was great. I knew they had a reputation at that point of treating their employees very well and that you know, I could work part-time and still qualify for benefits. That's that's what brought me to the company. Mm-hmm. And for the beginning of my career there, I, I think that they lived up to those expectations and they lived up to what they call their mission and values. But things started to slip and they started to slip pre-pandemic. So I'm not going to blame it all on the pandemic. The pandemic was certainly a catalyst for where we are now, but they started to slip before that. We started to see the cost of the benefits go up and the coverage go down. For me, the kicker was I broke my ankle in 2018. And with health insurance that I had through Starbucks, I ended up paying out of pocket completely for, for everything that went with this medical issue. And I was like, what am I doing here? this is what I came here for and this is the results. So that's where I think I started to have thoughts of like, all right, things either have to get better or maybe my time here is coming to an end. But I loved the people that I worked with and I loved the community that I worked in. And I liked that I had this second job to come to that felt like coming home in a lot of ways. And I didn't want to necessarily give those aspects of that up. And then we got to the pandemic and this company that had already started to slip really just let us down. Starbucks was one of the few companies in the service industry that stayed open throughout the entirety of the pandemic. While all of upper corporate was working from home safely in their, you know, home offices or their kitchens, we were in those stores every single day, pre-vaccine, being asked to do things like not enforce local mask mandates because the company policy is to de-escalate. So even if it was the law in your county that you you couldn't serve someone who wasn't wearing a mask, the company was saying, no, we, we want you to serve those people anyway. So it was just getting absolutely ridiculous. We were putting ourselves at risk daily, potentially bringing whatever we could catch home to our families. And the narrative from the company was that they were doing all of these things to keep us safe. But those of us in, in the cafes knew that that was absolutely not true. And we would get these things every week called a weekly update, which is basically, you know, corporate telling us all the amazing things they're doing for us. And they they would always lead by saying, you know, your safety is our utmost at the utmost importance. But that wasn't the reality. The reality of the situation was we were putting ourselves at risk every day. We were making record profits. The numbers at Starbucks were well above pre-pandemic numbers. And we had a CEO at the time who was on MSNBC and CNN and all of these financial shows patting himself on the back for bringing in these record-breaking profits mm-hmm. in the middle of this pandemic. And I've got co-workers crying in the back room because working full-time in the middle of a pandemic for a multi-billion dollar multinational company don't know if they can pay their rent and put groceries in their fridge. And it just wasn't, it wasn't making sense in my head. I didn't understand how this could be. And at that point, I've been with the company 11 years. So it's it's a long time. And so June or so of 2021, I just made the decision that I was going to leave. I didn't know where I was going to go, but the health benefits weren't what they were. So staying there is that. For an excuse, didn't make any sense to me. But part of the reason that Starbucks refers to its employees as partners, aside from the fact that it's a very manipulative way to make us all feel like we're at the same level, is because we are actually granted some stock in the company. It's a minuscule amount to the overall stock in the company, but it's something. And it vests annually. And it always vests in November. So in June, I said, I'm going to stick it out till November. Mm -hmm when those stocks vest, and then I'm going to walk away. And then in August, a coworker sent me a text message on a Sunday night and said, could we meet for a cup of coffee after one of our shifts? Which was, you know, that's what we do all day. So I was like... (laughs) "Uh." Sure. I yeah, I guess. You know, I a cocktail would be better, but yeah. sure we can eat for a coffee. And there was a position coming open at the store and she was a newer employee and I assumed maybe she was thinking about going for this promotion and she wanted mm-hmm. my take on it. I've had a lot of those conversations, but that's not what it was. We met a few days later and she asked me what I thought about Starbucks unionizing. Ooh. And I said, "What?" Um, mostly because I didn't hear her. And then she said it again. And I said, what again? Because I did hear her. And I said, I'd never thought about it. And so, but I was curious enough, you know, given the decision I had already come to, if this wasn't a way to stay with this company, Mm -hmm. to work with my fellow coworkers, to make it, make it what it once was or what it claimed that it was, I I wanted to know what the details were. So she, she explained everything. She said there were a a bunch of baristas in Buffalo that have been talking the last few weeks. And we really, they thought that this was the, the best possible solution to all of the problems we've been facing. And she asked if I would Support it. And I said, well, I'm about to go back into production for the first time in two years, and I don't have a lot of time, but what do you what do you need from me? <laughs> and she said, well, would you be willing to sign your name to a public letter to Kevin Johnson just, uh, you know, announcing that we want to do this? And I said, that's it? All you need is my name. And she said, yeah, that's that's it. And I was like, sure, you can have my name. Uh, the turning point for me was a couple of weeks later though. Yeah. Because we did have to go public very quickly. I think that we went public four days after I agreed to sign that letter. And we filed the petition at my location and two other locations in Buffalo a week after that. And then the corporate onslaught just hit Buffalo. I mean- We're talking well over 100 high-level corporate and other store managers from across the country that essentially just relocated to Buffalo to try to stop this. And I had my first anti-union meeting on September 10th of 2021, and I'll never forget it. It was at a hotel conference room. It was very off-putting. Ross Ann Williams, the then president of Starbucks North America, some She brings in something like $4 million a year is, you know, crying crocodile tears in this communal circle in this hotel conference room, telling us that, you know, we're all partners and they let us down and, you know, we haven't had the true Starbucks experience, but to give them a chance and they were going to make everything right. Cause none of the problems that existed in Buffalo existed anywhere else in the country. <laughs> it was just somehow this little pocket that they'd let this pocket down and they were going to take care of it. And they ended the the meeting by saying... So now we're going to talk about this union campaign. You know, we want everybody to vote and we personally want you to vote no. And I was so it was so off-putting to to have someone who's making 4 million dollars a year look me in the eyes and tell me that I should be doing something that was completely against my best interests. And I'm looking at the fear of my fellow co-workers who are just very confused about why we're even here and doing all of this. And they said, we're just giving you the facts. So if you want the facts about the union, you need to contact the union organizer. And so I like raised my hand and my heart was pounding and I said, okay, well, I'm one of the union organizers, and I would be happy to answer any questions you might have. And let's start with all of this misinformation that you just went down the line and we can we can go through that. So that was it. That was the moment where I thought I can't be passive. Mm-hmm. Like just saying, yeah, I'll sign a letter is not the same as standing with my coworkers and fighting. And we left that meeting and I got on the phone with one of the other very vocal supporters in my store. And I said, we need a plan and we need it right now. And then a few months later, December 9th, we were the first to unionize in the country.
1: Thank you so much, Michelle. I want to come back to more details about the organizing campaign. Um, But first, let's bring Chris in. Chris, tell us about how you grew up and how you first decided to organize at Amazon.
3: Yeah, I grew up right across the river from Hackensack, New Jersey. Born in Passaic, raised in Hackensack by a single mother. My mom worked hard. Went to college. Growing up a single parent household, I saw my mom get up every day, work hard, and you know go to work, and still manage to take care of me and my brother. I had to take on a lot of responsibilities in the household, you know, growing up, and I, I didn't have my father around. My father's still incarcerated till this day, and you know it also helped me pretty much grow up a little bit faster, become responsible a lot younger. Graduated from uh, Hacksack High. Went to Florida Atlantic University, moved down to Florida for a while. Got homesick because uh, Bush was in the office and um, I couldn't afford to be a student down there. Mm. So I came back home to New York and I transferred to the Institute of Audio Research for sound engineering. Yeah, then I became a rapper for a while. I, mm-hmm. I dropped out of school and I thought I was going to make it big as a rapper. I produced my first mixtape and... I had a pretty pretty good buzz in New Jersey. Did a lot of shows and and then I got married young. <laughs> mm. I don't know what happened.
1: Um, <laughs> she found <fell in> love.
3: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. No longer married anymore, but uh, I did get married at a young age. Then I had my beautiful kids, my twins, one boy, one girl, Nile and Gianni, who are now ten, going on eighteen. You know, uh, I became an essential worker, really, which I already, now that we were deemed essential workers in the pandemic, I guess I've been an essential worker for a very long time. Between working and my music, I gave that up to pretty much take care of my household, working odds and end jobs, warehouse jobs, a lot of warehouse jobs, temporary jobs. And then I became a Unite Here member when I got hired at Bet Life Stadium. I worked there for about five years, actually, the same time I started at Amazon in 2015. So, I opened up the first building in Carteret, New Jersey, EWR-9, came in entry level. I was a picker, outbound picker, and I was making, what, $12.75 at the time. I actually left the union job to go to Amazon thinking it would be a better opportunity. That was a mistake, obviously, but... Mm You know, in all fairness, I did have conflicts with the contract that we were under. So I thought that uh, Amazon would definitely have some more career opportunities for me, especially being a new building in New Jersey and me being one of the first new hires of that facility. At the time, I was pretty much treated good. You know, I worked hard until I was promoted up. My general manager at the time was African-American and he promoted up a lot of black and brown workers in the building. So that helped motivate me to continue to really give the company my all. You know, I poured my blood, sweat and tears into that company, spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week there, just trying to really elevate myself and elevate everybody around me in my department. Unfortunately, I didn't get that same respect and pretty much for my hard work took me four years to realize that pre-pandemic, I realized that I was a part of a system in Amazon that didn't really care about myself, didn't care about black and brown workers, didn't care about our promotion opportunities. And I've seen that. I've seen how over the years, people get hired and fired, people didn't get accommodated for. When it came to my own personal career experience, it was horrible. You know, actually, I was fired from Amazon, not in the pandemic, before it. Before that. When I opened up a building in Connecticut, my I was put in a situation where, you know, I was the only black supervisor from New Jersey that was in this new warehouse. All the upper management was either white or Asian. And they were targeting the black supervisors. So one by one, I seen them get let go. I seen them get put on performance improvement programs. And then they were giving out final written, which I never had. I had a clean record up until that point. And I received my first final written for doing something that I normally do. And then I noticed that. You know, when it came to... Getting promoted to become a salary manager, it was way more difficult for me. Mm-hmm. I applied one time and didn't even make it past the second round when I had way more experience than anybody in the building. And I've seen that over and over. I applied several times to the point where by the time I was terminated by Amazon in 2020, I applied to become a manager over 50 times. And I never got it, never even got close to it. I had two interviews in five years. And the second interview, which was given to me in Staten Island, in JFK 8, the only reason why I was given that interview is because I had to complain about it. And when I did that, the response from the the head of HR, who i never met, never had one conversation with, didn't know me, didn't know my work ethic, didn't know what I brought to the everyday table and the building. He told my manager that I have a history of escalating things. And I knew I wasn't going to get that interview. And if I did get the interview, I knew I was going to get the position. And I was right. The next day I got interviewed by a random ops manager. The day after that, I got my feedback saying I didn't get the position. The day after that, one of my white counterparts, she was promoted into my position, which I've been in for the last four and a half years. She's promoted to that position six months ago. Mm -hmm. She got promoted over me. And I trained her. So I asked her, I said, you know, how was your interview? And she told me pretty much they brought in the room and they asked her a few questions and they gave her the position. That's never been done before. Usually you have to go through three interviews before you become a manager. They pretty much skipped everything and just gave it to her. And that right there, pretty much, that was my last year for Amazon before mm. the pandemic. Mm. Uh, 2019, I was saying, you know, just like Michelle, I was saying, I got stocks. Amazon offers this package called the offer. Every year, for every year that you work, every peak season, um, up to five thousand dollars you could get paid for. But you could never work for Amazon or any of its subsidiaries ever again for your whole entire life. Let's let's pause on this for a second because
1: this is a very interesting fact that I found as well. So normally you would think of turnover, high turnover as a cost, right? As a bad thing. You have to train new people. You know, it's chaos for management, it's chaos for colleagues, for systems. Amazon has an extraordinarily high turnover rate. And in fact, they offer this bio after five years to ask you to quit, not based on, you know, your performance or anything, and say, you after five years, you can get this buyout to quit and you can never again work there. So in their estimation, they want workers to come in and stay at the bottom and go out they want that turnover. So you knew that you experienced that, you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place. You were like, I might, I might, that might be what I do. Exactly. As you were saying, it might, I might be a person who leaves, but I just want to, on this point, Chris, why do you think Amazon does that? It is, it is extremely rare and strange. It's not something they teach you in business school, right? (laughs) To get people in and out. Why do you think Amazon does that?
3: It's the, the way they design their system. You know, like you mentioned, the hire and fire, the turn and burn. When Amazon announces that they're hiring 150,000 people, mm-hmm. the media portrays that as it's a good thing. They're giving people jobs, but they're not explaining why. Yeah, <laughs> right.
1: Why do they need people?
3: <laughs> right. Why there's a need for that. Right. And yeah, that starts with the CEO. Jeff Bezos already admitted to designing this system years ago because he thought that, you know, us people in the working class are inherently lazy. So- for him, workers at the bottom are just a number, you know, mm-hmm. and that's that's something that I couldn't stand with anymore. You know, um, I watch not only myself grow through the abuse, but other people around me that I really care for. And still to this day, they're my extended family. Mm-hmm. And when the pandemic started, there was no way I was going to sit back and say, I'm going to work knowing that we're unprotected. We're, we have no PPE. We're being deemed the closest thing to the Red Cross. <laughs> and, and my job description just said to have a high school diploma or GED equivalent. Yeah. So there was no way I could just be complacent with that. So when the pandemic started, unfortunately I didn't get to quit. <laughs> The buyout is in February. Mm-hmm. So yeah. COVID happened in March, before that, actually. But, you know, by March, New York was the epic center of the world. And I could tell you now, Staten Island, this building that has over 8,000 employees, uh, Kobe was in that building. It was a no-brainer. And we were sitting shoulder by shoulder, no masks, no PPE, no cleaning supplies. The TVs was on in their break rooms. And we're watching the news. And they're telling us to socially distance right. and mask up. <laughs> and stay home. So I got up from the cafeteria and I said, you know what? I'm going to HR. I tried to go through the proper channels. Like, Hey, what are we doing here? And the answer was just nonchalant. Like, Hey, uh, we're following the CDC guidelines. We're doing this. We're doing that. I'm like, where Mm -hmm. I said, I got workers that are passing out, vomiting, not showing up, afraid to show up, have children at home. I have children at home. This doesn't make any sense. We need to close the building down. Um, you know, Dave's like, uh, we'll get back to you. I said, okay. I had to take further action. So the next day I came into work and that's when um, I was told in a manager meeting that we have every day that there were already people in here positive, but not to tell anybody. They didn't want me to tell any of the workers because they didn't want to cause to uproar and they wanted to keep business as usual. And that was my last day working for Amazon. I walked out of there along with who is now the vice president of the Amazon labor union, Derek Palmer. And we went home to my house and we started calling the media, calling whoever we could, the governor at the time, calling elective officials, calling the CDC, obviously didn't get to get through to nobody. No media picked up the phone for me. I got a lot of, we'll get back to you. Let us know how it go. I think they were just so focused on Trump at the time. It was just like, I was just, you know, never got through to anybody. It wasn't until I had to pretty much figure out a way to get the media's attention. So me and Derek decided to go back to the building, even though, you know, I said, I'm not going to go to work. I said, I'm going to go tell the workers the truth anyway. So we went back in the cafeteria. We sat in there for 10 hours a day, telling every worker that we saw the truth and that we want to march on the boss, the general manager, to get the building closed. We did that every morning up until about Saturday. And that's when they decide to quarantine just me and nobody else. Because they said that- What you had
1: was about to catch. That's what they were working (laughs) on.
3: (laughs) Right. So, and I said, you know, the same thing. I'm like, why just this me? Mm-hmm. You
1: no,
3: know, I, I ride to work with Derek. I have a department with over 600 people. The person that you claimed that I was positive around, she's been around them before I was around her. I was around you guys. I've been in the office all week. So I think everybody should be quarantined. That's what I said. No, just you. And I didn't get, till this day, no email from Amazon, no termination letter. It just told me, word of mouth, the senior ops, the senior ops by his mouth told me that I was quarantined. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm going to respect that decision I left. But then I said, you know, if I leave and I'm quarantined, what about everybody else? So that's when I said, you know what? Let me try one more time with the media. And the New York Post finally got back to me. Of course, I had to gas up uh, the numbers. I said, uh, they asked me, they always want to know how many people. So I said about 200.
1: are <laughs> going to be at this protest. Oh, yeah, yeah, at the yeah. walkout.
3: So, you know, the, the eyes got big. Oh, wow, 200? But I didn't expect... It to go as viral as it did. You know, when they published, you know, everybody's talking about it. Now the media is picking up. They're calling me now. So I said, okay, this is gonna be good. But this is my first walkout ever. I wasn't the organizer. I wasn't the Mm -hmm. union organizer. Anything. Yeah, me and Derek on March 20th, we drove towards the building and literally saw a helicopter. Channel Four. I'm like, oh shoot, (laughs) yo, what did we do? all the media was out there, vans and everything. I'm like, oh man. I say, you know what? We just got to go. Yeah. <laughs> we, there's no turning back, you know? So the way we plan the walkout, I know perception is everything. I know the media can't go on the property and I knew it was lunchtime. So I checked the weather. I say, you know, working at Amazon on a, a rainy day, you know, everybody's inside but on a sunny day. When we get a chance to get free, we go outside to eat lunch. So it was about 65 degrees that day. I said, everybody's going to be outside. So I planned it at- there's- going to
1: walk out the door. <laughs> going to walk out the door.
3: So I planned it at 1230. So the media was there at like 1130. Mm-hmm. And at 1230, they were worried because nobody came out the door. I said, well, this is a 1.5 million square foot building, 14 NFL football field. Give them about five more minutes. And then that time, yeah, people started walking out. And that's all they knew was that there was a walkout. And that's I all it. I need to know. <laughs> so in that moment, there was their walkout. There was our chance to talk to the media mm-hmm. and more people spoke up sure. that saw us doing it mm-hmm. because, you know, they wanted to say something the whole time. So, yeah, two hours after that walkout was fired.
1: <laughs> now, of course, the way both of these stories not end, but the the arc that began with both of these stories of these first moments was with a successful world-shattering union vote at the Buffalo Starbucks and the Staten Island JFK Amazon warehouse. And I wanna get into a little bit why it is that a union is still necessary for this workforce in general, the restaurant workforce, one to 2% rate of unionization, warehouse a little bit higher, but not much. Why is it still necessary when Amazon and Starbucks both say they pay really high wages, You guys are both talking about stock benefits here. You thought that you would do better at Amazon than you did at your unionized job at the stadium. You went to Starbucks for the benefit today. Why is a union necessary in each of these industries?
2: The most simplistic answer is it's, the only way to hold companies accountable. So Starbucks does claim that they offer a a slew of fantastic benefits and other sort of perks to working for the company. I will tell you from someone who's been there for 12 years, they're definitely not as good as they claim they are, but I've also watched them come in the last dozen or so years and pull things away without any explanation or conversation. And the only way to ensure that the benefits stay your benefits is through a a collective bargaining agreement. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's simply what it is. Even when they've come in during the organizing campaign and essentially granted a lot of what the unions asks were to begin with, seniority pay and different types of benefits. They've granted them. They've granted them to non-union stores. They have not granted them to union stores because, you know, that's their game. But when media loves to ask, you know, Starbucks is so wonderful. I mean, they, he just said yesterday, he's going to give you all of these things. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, but who's going to stop him from coming back tomorrow and taking those all away? I've watched it happen. So for me, that's the big thing is the fact that nothing's guaranteed without a contract and I don't care how wonderful your employer is or claims to be, that's just the reality of the situation.
3: Yeah, the same. You know, Amazon has a policy that says they can change their policies at any time. So, you know, we tell workers all the time, say, you try to go in there and ask for a raise because inflation or because rent went up and see how that conversation goes. Mm -hmm. But if you go in there with everybody, you have a voice, you have power. And we realize, you know, the only way, yes, we're going to hold the company accountable is by unionizing. But also, it's also about having a better quality of life for us. You know, we don't, Get taught these things in school. We don't get taught the real labor history in this country. If you'd have told me I could be as cool as a union organizer as a rapper, <laughs> I would have been. This. So I want to just hear a little
1: bit from both of you about what you're building at. Amazon Labor Union and at Starbucks Worker United, that is different. What some of the challenges are. One of the things I want to keep asking you throughout this conversation is what do you need from us? There are a lot of people online and in this room who want to help. So just talk about this moment, what you're trying to build, how it's different, and what are the challenges and what do you need?
3: Well, we're we're trying to save this damn country. I can yeah, tell you that. That's
1: right. <laughs> you
3: know, that's what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, I mean, the Amazon Labor Union is uh, representation of everybody. You know, the working class. We came together as an independent, worker-led union with no political ties, just focusing on work-related issues, and that resonated with the workers at JFK. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's no other way we could have went around it. Of course, people asked why we didn't affiliate, and you know why we we went independent to make it harder on ourselves well two things amazon's been around for 28 years <laughs> obviously other established unions couldn't get it through couldn't get the job done and there's been attempts on amazon for years that never people never even heard of mm-hmm. we had to adapt to the 21st century style of organizing a lot of established unions traditionally organize in secrecy they do things different they have a bunch of salts we couldn't what are salt? salts are you know people that work for the union that are there to organize the workers in secrecy. You know, most of, most of the things that Amazon used against unions, we knew as an independent, it would be hard for them to do. Mm-hmm. They can't use the president's salary because mm-hmm. I'm unemployed. Mm-hmm. They can't say that we have a history of our wins or losses or financial mm-hmm. woes. Mm-hmm. They can't say that we're a third party mm-hmm. because we're the co-workers, mm-hmm. that we're in the room and the captive right. audiences. The same type of tactics they use in Alabama, we knew we expected that. So for us forming something new, that was the way to go for us. And it worked. As far as the, you know, what we can uh, ask for now, you know, we're trying to go nationwide. You know, we have a campaign in, that we just announced in Moreno Valley, outside of San Bernardino. We have One upstate, I just came back from Albany, ALB1, ALB1, their election is next month, Mm. October 12th. We also have a building in Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, MQY1. We still have LDJ5, and we definitely have to keep engaging with JFK8 workers as we wait on the contract. We just had a huge victory court last week. We're waiting for our certification so that we can get the company to come to the table, we know that's not going to happen. So for the outside community support, we're just saying, you know what, let's build up our Solidarity Fund, a.k.a. Strike Fund. You know, let's show up to our demonstrations. We just had a huge one on Labor Day right here. We got another one coming up on Indigenous Day, also known as Columbus Day. But, you know, we're going to have demonstrations coming up, and we want community support for sure, and definitely support us with donating if you can Mm -hmm. until we get a contract. All right, Michelle.
2: So ours is a little bit different, but not too much from Chris. We did organize with a parent union, Mm -hmm. Workers United, which is an independent affiliate of SEIU. I think it's interesting to note that for the most part, any big union or parent union willing to take on a company like Starbucks is Mm -hmm. very unlikely. So the fact that Mm -hmm. this joint board or this local in Rochester, New York was like, sure, we'll help you do that was pretty crazy to begin with. Mm -hmm. But the partnership we've been able to form with Workers United as the campaign of Starbucks Workers United is worker led. It Mm -hmm. is them letting us take the lead and bringing us into positions where we're able to, to make the strategic decisions for the campaign. There's people like Daisy who are experienced organizers who can sort of guide us through that process, but the organizing is being done by the workers because it has to be Mm -hmm. because there's nobody who knows what happens in those stores better than the workers who are Mm -hmm. in those stores. So the way that this sort of evolved is it it started in Buffalo because it had to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And we ended up with two organized. Stores by the beginning of this year of January, and then workers from the stores were reached out to by workers at at other Starbucks across the country, saying, "Hey, we really want to do this." And so it, then it became like this sort of, "All right, well, I'm going to help this store in Mesa, Arizona, and communicate with the leader in there, and then Mesa is going to help this store in Phoenix and communicate." So it's become this sort of chain of worker to worker to worker to worker, which actually works completely into Starbucks. You know, they call it the partner to partner connection. They have mm. influenced this from the beginning. They've encouraged this. There's all sorts of hashtags that have always existed. There's been, you know, partner, Starbucks partner, Facebook groups since there was Facebook mm. where people have communicated with each other across the country and across the world. So this sort of structure, mm. internal structure of communication existed. Mm. And when one of us was abused, we were all abused and we mm-hmm. knew that. We mm-hmm. knew we were being exploited for our labor. We knew we were being completely undervalued. We knew that this company was bringing in billions of dollars of profit off of our labor and we were seeing nothing for it. And so everyone was just sort of sitting on their hands, waiting f- to see what would happen with that first couple of stores. And once that happened, that was it. You know, f- How many
1: petitions have there been at Starbucks stores across the country now? So
2: the numbers are very hard to keep up mm-hmm. with because we're doing a store by store mm-hmm. and- there's just under 9,000 corporate-owned Starbucks in the country. But um, I think as of Wednesday, we had won 242. That could be different today because mm-hmm. there seem to be elections all the time. And we're over 350 filed petitions. So there's other you know votes upcoming. Okay. Um, and it just well, keeps going.
1: Let's talk about technology, right? Because both of these companies, as part of their record-breaking profitability, have really relied on technology in some of the ways that customers see, like the mobile app, which counted for before the pandemic, and I think really beginning in that period of the slide that you talked about before the pandemic, for the vast majority of orders made at Starbucks, right? So we see that as customers. But with Amazon, obviously, tech-enabled, But so much technology monitoring, evaluating, controlling the worker experience. Two questions there. One, how do you think this has impacted the lives of workers? And what do you want to see differently about technology inside an Amazon warehouse and technology inside of the Starbucks cafe?
3: Yeah, well, Amazon definitely, they are innovative for sure. They progress so rapidly over the years. I know when I was there, productivity was about 250 an hour. Now it's over 400.
1: And what, just for people who've never worked at an Amazon warehouse, what does that mean? What is a picker? What is
3: 250, 250 what? Right. for us? So yeah, my department was responsible for picking customers items that they ordered. I had to stand in front of a robot shelf or bookshelf that looked like a bookshelf that you would see in the store. And this on top of a robot that drives it around on the Kiva floor. It will bring it bring the work to your station. And these are customer items. You pick them pretty much all day. And you have to do that at a rate of 250 an hour. That was back when I was hired in 2015. Now it's over 400. So 400 items an hour. You're touching over 4,000 packages and you work 10-hour shifts. Some people work 12-hour shifts.
1: And you were good at it
3: Yeah. from what I've read. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, pretty much number one for a while. And yeah, I definitely tell told my new hires, if you got a gym membership, cancel it because <laughs> you, you're about to do 10 to 12 hours of calisthenics. You're bending, you're reaching, you're pulling. And Amazon knows that. That's why, once again, they designed a system to hire and fire. They know people ain't going to last long. And, you know, technology, it calculates the rate of productivity. Yeah. They go by percentages. If a large percentage can do a higher rate, they increase the productivity. Mm-hmm. But we also have to use that with organizing as well. You know, on our side, a lot of things that helped us out was using technology, using social media to our advantage. We had to really do things that were outside the norm of organizing and also things that the company can't do. And I can tell you right now, TikTok played a very large (laughs) part of our campaign because they hated it. Mm. Uh, We went viral on there. The next day, they sent like four letters to the board over TikTok. If you paid attention to our court hearing, they used TikTok videos pretty much the whole time as evidence. So it's like, you know, that's how the importance of reaching mass and and getting messaging Mm -hmm. out there We have to counter that as well on our side. You know, so technology, yeah, I'm all for it, but as long as it's in the the hands of the right people.
2: I completely agree with that. (laughs) So in terms of technology in Starbucks, it's drastically changed the working environment. So we used to, we measure things by half hour increments, half hour transactions. And so I think when I started with the company, if you hit a 50 transaction half hour, that was pretty substantial. Mm -hmm. And that's a transaction. That's not an item. That's not to say Uh that every one of those transactions could have 12 different components, but it's just the individual transaction. Now we've got, you know, I'm in a cafe, so I don't even have a drive-through to Account for. So I've got one less channel than these drive through stores, which are taking over most of the company. You know, we're doing an average of maybe 104, 105 half hour. There's no cap. So Mm. People are mobile ordering. They don't know that their drinks could be backed up for a half hour, but the company doesn't necessarily care about that because as soon as you hit that order button, they've got your money. Mm -hmm. So you go into a lot of these really busy stores, you'll see just this wasteland of abandoned food and drinks that people came in to get on their way to work or on their way to school and couldn't wait the time Mm -hmm. that it took for us to make them. Mm. So what ends up happening is they abandon it. And the company policy is this person who's probably very upset because they spent this money and didn't get these items that they wanted because the barista could not physically keep up with what was coming in. Mm-hmm. They can then call and ream one of us out for not getting their item. And then we tell them, it's we're really sorry. You know, We appreciate your business. Please come in and we'll make that again for you for free whenever you're able to. <laughs> so we're doubling just in that regard. It's doubling our workload because we have to remake the item that we already did make. There's no technology cap that says, hey, these drinks are backed up 30 yeah. minutes. Maybe we just automatically shut the system down. In order to get the system shut down, you have to go through this. Chain. You have to like go through the store manager who has to go through the district manager. There's usually a lag. By that point, you've got a lobby full of incredibly angry people who are not angry at Howard Schultz. They're <laughs> angry at the barista who's, you know, been running around for three hours already, mm-hmm. got there at 4 a.m. to open the store. And so it is, it's changed everything. It's changed the entire working environment. Starbucks used to tout, in fact, this training has recently stopped. And it just occurred to me in the last couple of weeks that they're not even promoting this anymore, but they used to call the shops the third place. Yeah. And it was was like you had your house, you had your work environment, and then you had Starbucks, which was your third place. And you should feel not only should you feel the ability to come in and have that, but the, mm. the employees should feel the ability to have mm. that as well. And we used to have regular like third place training, how to ensure that the customer had that experience. And those are just not even happening anymore. So that right there tells you the business model has shifted completely. You know, we're not, we're not trying to create an experience. Interestingly enough, we're we're graded each store is graded on what's called the customer connection score. And that is based on the ability to have a connection with a customer that they can then rate you on and you are, could be potentially disciplined if, if it considerably falls, but there's nah, that doesn't exist in right. the environment anymore. So the fact that it's still being used as a gauge as to how productive or how yeah. successful these stores are, it's just everything contradicts the other and it's only getting consistently worse.
1: I mean the the common thread here is the humanity is being stripped out of these experiences. Obviously Starbucks had an ambition of being quite a, you know, humanistic place. Amazon never had that ambition. Uh, every time you say picker, I just bristle, right? I mean, I'm sorry, you know, the vast oh, majority of the warehouse workers are brown and black. We all know what happened to, you know, to our ancestors when the productivity of the cotton picking became mechanized with the cotton And I'm just I'm 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 having a moment. I'm having a moment. But you know the the underlying issue here is that when when you combine the extraordinary wealth that can be created, right? The pandemic particularly was an absolute windfall for both of these companies, right? And you hear it in the changes in the worker experience of all of the profit. And revenue that was created. A Brookings study showed that 98% of the wealth went to shareholders, right, who are already in the top 5% of the, of the income distribution. Just 2% went to work, right? So they touted these wage increases and all of that happened during the pandemic, that happened during this moment of tight labor markets, but the value is really going to shareholders. I want to thank you for your leadership, for your time, for your generosity, for this audience, for your patience. And of course, as always, to the School of Labor and Urban Studies at CUNY and all the staff who put this event together. Thank you. Keep fighting. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up not only in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, but also in our journal, New Labor Forum. In fact, the current issue features articles that assess high-octane organizing at Starbucks, and early efforts by the Teamsters to confront Amazon. You can find these articles on our website at newlaborforum.cuny.edu, where we encourage you to subscribe to the journal as well. And to learn more about Reinventing Solidarity, the podcast, and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu podcast.